1: Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector Daisy Buchanan and I'm so happy that you're here. We're back in our national treasure era and I'm thrilled to share our conversation with literary superstar Ken Follett. First, the Your Booked Parish Bulletin. I'll be at Henley Literary Festival on the 6th and 7th of October with Jasprey Cower and Isabel daughter, Rob Rinder and more. You can get tickets at henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk. Then on the 21st and 22nd of October, I'll be at the Margate Bookie. Go to margatebookie.com to check out the programme. You'll have the chance to meet some superstar podcast graduates like Adam Kay and Andy Osho. I plan to sit at the front with a giant banner for Deborah Levy, so you might want to make sure you're not directly behind me for that one. Now to Ken! We're talking about his latest Kingsbridge novel, The Armour of Light, as well as his new BBC Maestro course on writing best-selling fiction. Across 20 lessons, he explores numerous topics including what makes a character believable, the importance of preparation and research, and how to keep your character guessing. I'm about to start my next novel draft, so I'm very, very keen to absorb Ken's wisdom. You can find out all about it at bbcmaestro.com. For now, here's Ken. Firstly, I know that you are teaching a BBC maestro class and I would love to know which author would you love to be a a maestro student of? Is there anyone you'd like to resurrect and learn from?
2: There are many. Um, I suppose Anthony Trollope, Um, because he was the master of my kind of book, which is a novel with multiple characters multiple points of view, comp- long and complicated, Not di- never difficult. Trollope is never difficult. He's always easy to understand. You know, you never have to read one of his sentences twice, which I think is po- important in popular fiction. Uh, but he was the master. And I, uh, if, he, if he were alive and could do a maestro class, I would watch every episode.
1: I was just thinking about Trollope because I loved The Warden and I read it when I was quite young and never quite got to grips with the rest of the Barchester Chronicles. And I think it's long overdue. It's about time. But I vaguely remember him being very generous and saying, I'm going to go into detailed explanation about ecclesiastical matters. If you want to read, this is nerdery for you, but you can skip this bit and it won't affect your understanding of the story, which I thought was fabulous.
2: I liked, uh, I liked the warden very much indeed. And the great thing about it is that the, the newspaper has uncovered a real scandal, a real scandal. I mean, money that was supposed to go to old, these old men uh, is actually mostly being paid to the warden of the house where they live. Uh, but what Trollope does is, is so clever, is that the warden is actually a really nice old boy really sincere, really loves these men that he's looking after. It would have been much easier if it was a horrible person, but the novel is so much better when the actual beneficiary of this essentially scam is such a nice bloke.
1: And I can see how that has maybe stayed with you as a theme, the sort of The humanity of everyone, that sometimes I think it's really good fun to have very clear heroes and clear villains and, you know, to sort of dream about people getting their just desserts. But it's much more complicated and much more multifaceted than that.
2: I like to do both, you know. I like to do both sometimes. There are times when you want a villain to just be an out-and-out, black-hearted villain. Um, I remember writing, when I was writing The Pillars of the Earth... Uh, William Hamley is the villain villain of that novel and I thought about you know softening him a bit and giving him a little bit of humanity and and <laughs> then I thought the heck with that he's going to be you know a giant who eats babies that kind of thing uh, and you know that of, of all the characters I don't know how many how, thou- there must be thousands of characters in my books now And of all of them, the one people talk to me about most often is William Hamley. And they say, they say, I hated that William Hamley, which is great because, of course, as a writer, you want the readers to really engage with the story as if the people were real. You know, somebody says, I hate that William Hamley. He's not real. I made him up sitting in this chair at this desk. But they hate him. So they've got, that means that the the reader has got an emotional reaction to the character, as if that character was a real person. I probably made the right choice with William Hamley, but it's not always like that. In my um, my latest book, The Armour of Light, there is a villain called Hornbeam. His name is Hornbeam. But I did give him, I gave him a soft spot. He's pretty nasty, and uh, everybody will be glad when he dies. All the readers will be glad when he dies, which, of course is not till almost the end of the book. He's got a soft spot which is sort of a sort of a weakness.
1: As a reader who in fiction have you loved to hate? And also as a second part of that question, are there any villains or characters that you have changed your mind about?
2: When I read The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris which which is which now must be 30 years ago, that was that's one of the books that made me think, oh, boy, I wish I'd written that. And in particular, I wish I had created Hannibal Lecter. Uh, he's, he's the, of them all, you know, he's the one that I, I love to hate more than anybody else. He's such a good villain. He's so clever. And he's so mean. And he, of course, is ultimately, he's he's a lunatic, isn't he? I mean, ultimately, you know, he kills people, then eats them with a Famously with a bottle of a good Chianti, Dickens has quite good ones, really. Um, well, of course, Fagin is uh, fame is you know famously a villain that we actually like. I mean, he is a villain. He corrupts um, boys and turns them into thieves, and uh, that's pretty villainous. But he's he's sort of got a good nature as well.
1: And I suppose. With Fagin, there's Bill Sykes lurking in the background who is, I think there's a genuine kind of darkness to him. I wonder if Fagin is a villain because he's weak and it's that very sort of Dickensian characteristic of sort of getting by and making us realise that, you know, what's the moral if it dissolves in hot water? And most of us might, sort of the things we hold dear, might not survive in those conditions. Um, Whereas Bill Sykes, I think, has that, Dark, yeah. dark heart,
2: and given yes, and of course, given that he's got two villains in that novel, that they couldn't both be black-hearted. They couldn't both be like Bill. So he he had to create two contrasting kinds of villainy, um, just for you know the balance of the story. So um, you can see why he did that.
1: But as I was thinking as well, when you were talking about Hannibal Lecture, I think hating people is really scary I think that's an emotion that frightens us as humans you know we want to be decent and we want to be balanced we want to sort of see the good and the bad and the luxury of reading a novel with a villain is we get that release we get to kind of judge that nastiness and that and you know it feels so good it's not hard to to hate someone who's done a a terrible thing I think that's what definitely sort of holds me in a book and and keeps me there. Um, yeah. In um, it was the uh, Richard Osman's first of no, the Thursday Murder Club. I was trying to remember oh, what they were called. And I remember realizing how engaged I was and how much I was enjoying it because they there's someone really truly hateable. and I think they're the first person to get bumped off. And I remember feeling kind of deliciously swizzed, as though was like, <laughs> I was really enjoying hating them, and now that's been taken from me. And that felt so, such a satisfying sort of thing to notice, like, that I just didn't realise how, how deep I was in until yeah. I had that real, like, oh, feeling.
2: In Eye of the Needle, I did something that I wouldn't have the nerve to do now, because really the central character in Eye of the Needle is the villain. You know that's very unconventional and was a, a very bold thing to do. Or perhaps I should say, if I'd realised <laughs> what uh, how unconventional it was, I might not have been bold enough to do it. But it just didn't occur to me that that was an odd thing to do. And so Faber, the German spy, kills a lot of innocent people. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't do that in a in a book now. Um, it's too bloodthirsty, but. Uh, what did I know? I was 27 when I wrote Eye of the Needle and it's still, uh, people are still enjoying it. I must have done something right. But but the thing about Faber is that he has charm. Uh, so he goes through this story, wiping out everybody who gets in his way, but he also charms people. You know, he's got a good side of him. He's quite cultivated and he's quite sexy and he's good looking and... Um, uh, you find yourself rooting for him some of the time. Even he's the enemy, you know, and, and he's got to lose because, after all, we know who won the Second World War, so we know Faber's got to be wiped out at the end of the story. So I guess what that shows you is that there aren't any hard and fast rules. I mean, if you if you write well, then you can do just about anything, so long as you can write well enough to capture the reader. Make the reader more interested in the story than they are in real life, just for a, an hour or two.
1: Do you think that your writing and your sense of the stories you want to tell has that changed and evolved as you've become more aware of your your read your you know legions of readers and sort of armies of millions of readers and hearing how they respond? Are you able to sort of to keep things separate?
2: In a sense, I think about the reader all the time because really on every page there needs to be something that makes you want to turn over and read the next page. Um, And I constantly think, I look at what I've written and I think, um, will they enjoy this? Will they believe that this could really happen? Or if it's a violent scene, like a torture scene, I mean, I, is this so horrible that somebody's gonna put the book down and stop reading? I think about that kind of thing all the time. What's changed, I think, uh, in my work over the years, is that I've got much more interested in writing long, complex stories. My first uh, half a dozen books, uh, successful books, were thrillers. They're quite short. Even if there are several characters, it's a thriller. It is very direct. You know, it usually begins with somebody being given a mission, and it ends when the mission is accomplished or maybe frustrated, and uh, that's the story. But I've got much more interested in uh, a story that portrays a society and how the people within that, like in a town, Kingsbridge, of course, is the is the one that. Um, I've written about most and how the people in that town interact with one another and how they're affected by his great historical change. And that is, that's a completely different kind of novel to write because uh, it isn't direct. It's not a straight line. It's, a, it's, it's interwoven like, like a piece of uh, cloth, you know, for a, for a check suit. But um, the novels of that type that I've written have been more popular than my thriller's. And, uh, you know, I enjoy writing them more and it seems that the, that readers enjoy reading them more.
1: I'd love to hear a bit about how Kingsbridge sort of exists in your head, because it's a, you know, a pulsing thing that exists. And I imagine it exists a little bit differently in the head of every single reader. But that enormous sort of volume of information and that, you know, do you feel as though it's sort of almost growing independently and you know when you sort of when you come to it again do you remember every nook and corner of it do you ever kind of encounter bits and you think oh I forgot I put that there or I forgot those
2: people lived there <laughs> well um yes is the short answer to that question um and uh, uh the only time I've ever reread one of my own books from cover to cover was when I wrote uh, World Without End which was the sequel to The Pillars of the Earth um and I wrote it a i think it was 17 years after the pillars of the earth so i certainly didn't remember all the details about kingsbridge and um it was a funny experience to read my own book after a period long enough for me to forget quite a lot of it because i kept thinking oh i wasn't expecting that (laughs) oh that's clever (laughs) (laughs) and it was quite enjoyable really um you know, I had sort of a slightly objective view of something that I'd written. But I also, I had to make notes. And I've done that. uh, Subsequently, you know, I've got a file of things that the geography of Kingsbridge at the time of World Without End, for example, which I had to study, because I was going to write um, a column of fire. And it's the it's the same town. The buildings might have changed, but the hill is still there and the river is still there and the island is still there and the church is still there. And the thing is, as a writer, you might forget things, but the reader might not. <laughs> so, and I bet um, they
1: write. I bet they let you know.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I, they, they would if I made mis- mistakes. I don't think I've made many mistakes of that type, but they do if there is something they notice. Uh, they certainly will and um and i 'm glad they do because I want to be aware of these things i don't don 't want to don 't want mistakes to happen and you know me blithely thinking i didn 't make any any mistakes uh, So that 's fine, but yes, it is true and with the armor of light, there are five Kingsbridge novels now, so that 's um goodness that's uh that 's about a million and a half words, even thirty years ago, when my memory was a lot better than it is today i wouldn 't have remembered all those details.
1: Now, I'm going to ask you to do some remembering and go back to the past. I'd love to know if you have a memory of a particular book when you were a young man and a a new reader, the first novel that you chose for yourself that you remember being really electrified by. Uh,
2: Well, it was the first James Bond book that I read, um, which uh, was Live and Let Die. And I was completely blown away by it. Uh, I thought it was just the greatest thing.
1: And how did you find it and how old were you?
2: Uh, I was 12. I was allowed, uh, all my reading came from the public library because um, my parents weren't poor, but, you know, in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, um, they didn't have disposable income enough to buy me a lot of books. And I used to read three books a week. I, th- I mean, most writers are like this as children, you know, they 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 start off as a, we start off as avid readers, and then we become writers. So anyway, public library, and I had read all the books in the children's library by the time I was 12. And so they let me into the grown up library that you're supposed to wait till you were 16. But they were, they were good enough to, um, to see that my appetite <laughs> needed to be satisfied. And, you know, they said to me now, now, the librarian will look at the books you've chosen and if there are any that are unsuitable for you, you won't be allowed to take them out. And I said, yes, of course. I They never stopped. Well, actually, the only book they ever stopped me reading was a John Steinbeck, Tortilla Flat. I don't know why they picked that, but they let me take James Bond out, you know. And there's a there's a bloke, he, he drinks martinis, he smokes all the time, he he he's always going to bed with women he's not married to. And you would think if... If you were going to censor anything for a 12-year-old, you'd stop him reading James Bond. Anyway, they didn't. And uh, I just loved those books. And later, when I started trying to write novels myself, about 10 years later, about when I was about 22, I started trying to write novels. And I remembered the thrill of holding a new James Bond story in my hand and knowing how much I was going to enjoy it. And I thought, my readers have to feel like that. That's what I've got to do. That's the bar, you know, that if you want to be successful and you want people to love these stories, that's how they've got to feel about, about your work. And it was a high bar to set myself. But that was really the influence that James Bond had over me. It was not, I've never written like Fleming. I, I, I couldn't you know, his style is very individual and very distinctive, but I've never written that kind of story. I've never had that kind of hero. It's the magic, you know, that I realised I have to create that magic myself for my readers. You know, that made me really ambitious and it made me much more of a perfectionist, you know. So I I look at a page that I've written and I think, who the heck cares about that? <laughs> good enough is not good enough. It's got to be fantastic if you really want you want people to love your work. And I think that's most, what most of us do want. We want people to love our work. It's not like being a, a pop star. When you're a pop star, people love you. You know, you stand on the stage and they scream and they shout and they want to take you home. It's not that like that with writers. They don't love the writer, they love the story.
1: And I think that they feel as though they own the story just as much as the writer does in some cases. And that's the ultimate act of generosity, I think. And it's, you know, hard to to let it go. And I was um, thinking about this because I understand, is it the pillars of the earth has been adapted into a video game? Yes. <laughs> and it made me think of, you know, the concept of the death of the author and the reader owning something and what that feels to... Now, I admit I'm not a a big gamer or much of a gamer, but that your story and your world and everything that came out of your head is now people can play that and bring their own sort of imagination to bear on it. And what a thing that is to give to to readers and fans, but also whether it felt strange that, you know, your story is sort of not set in stone to um, use a clunky cathedral metaphor, that people are off exploring
2: I know exactly what you mean and part of it is that um, of course uh, I'm trying to create a picture in the reader's head when I describe something and um, you, when you talk, if you talk to readers for any length of time you discover that their pictures are quite different from the ones that you had in mind when they were writing writing. So what happens is that, that the reader takes what you've written and transforms it and it as you said, it becomes their story as well. And uh, so when a story of mine is transformed then into a movie or sometimes a theater musical, some of my stories have been turned into theater musicals or a game or a board game. There, There are a lot of board games about the Kingsbridge novels. That never bothers me because I know, I don't mind that the filmmaker is going to tell the story completely differently from the way I told it, because I know that in a sense, that already happens. the reader uh, makes the story different from how I envisaged it, and that doesn't matter because the thrill is knowing that that I, I created this, and now it's in somebody else's head, and they think about it and they've got feelings about it and although they'll interpret it differently it's still got still the basic bones of what I wrote now. There are millions of people who have one or more of my stories in their head. It's a, it's, you're quite right. It's a weird thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's, you know, it, it's very pleasing for the author.
1: You said that as a, a library user, you were reading three books a week. What is your reading life like now? Um, when do you read and what do you like to read?
2: Well, I read in the evening because I, I work all day. There's not much that I don't like. Um, I like mysteries and science fiction. I don't like fantasy very much. I I like science fiction because it obeys the rules. And I dislike fantasy. I can't read The Lord of the Rings because anything can happen. Uh, But generally, speaking, I occasionally read literary novels. Um, I'm a great lover of Proust. I've read all of the recherche in English and quite a lot of it in French as well. Proust is, is absorbing in the weirdest way, the weirdest way, because there's no story. You're just inside this bloke's head and he's a fusspot, but he's perceptive and he thinks about every little thing that happens. And you, get, you do get absorbed in that. You do get absorbed in... in and I suppose the real answer is there are, so, there are many, many different kinds of novel and most of them I enjoy...
1: I really, really loved uh, Duck's New Report by Lucy Ellman, which I had to read it a few years ago because um, for work reasons, I had to read the full Booker shortlist. And at the time, I remember thinking, I'm not going to like this. It was famously sort of a thousand pages long in a single sentence. And I thought the only way I could do it was to sort of start timing myself. And it took me a couple of hours. And I thought, well, I'm just going to force myself through this an hour at a time with an alarm. And then after two sitting sessions i was hooked the voice got in my head and it's sort of proustian in that it is lots of very very small observations that have a kind of gestalt i guess it's sort of something kind of bigger than the sum of their parts and i think i get that in terms of how humans are and the nature of a novel is that things that require to be you know sort of big and grand and compelling because, you know, there's got to be plot and there's got to be a point. Only I love those stories that are tiny, fidgety, sort of flickering observations because I think that's how most of us sit. And I think being in our... And I don't know if sort of readers and writers are just in their heads so often that in a strange way, being in someone else's head on that extremely granular level is a a treat and a respite.
2: (laughs) I guess it is. Um, I'm thinking about that Norwegian guy um, who has been compared with Proust. No, um,
1: Nostradamus. No yeah,
2: that's right. Yes, that's right. Um, and I, I read the first of his. I was quite interested, and I was quite gripped by it. But then he wrote another six, I think, and I, I, I thought, no, one's, one's <laughs> enough. <laughs>
1: Any books that you've changed your mind about or things that you've perhaps started and not connected with and then picked up again or, you know, revisited?
2: Yeah, lots. As time goes by, my taste has changed. Um, I I started, we started our discussion talking about Anthony Trollope, but I actually tried to to read Trollope twice and and didn't like him. I think in, in my 20s and 30s. And then I tried again, I guess, when I was about 50 and, and really loved him. So that's one that I've changed my mind about. I, I guess what the truth of it is that um, at certain times of your life, you're ready for a certain author. Oh, I've, another example I could think of is D.H. Lawrence, who I thought was quite wonderful when I was a teenager. And now I can't read him at all. And I suppose... That's because as a teenager, you're you're sort of looking for the truth about all sorts of things. And he seems very sure of himself. And so as a teenager, you read what he writes about love and marriage and families and so on. And you think, oh, so that's how it is. And then when you're 50, you think, yeah, but it's not like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I've definitely changed my mind about D.H. Lawrence. don't like him at all. Still, even his poetry... There are one or two really good poems, but um, a lot of it is a bit tedious. I think.
1: I know um, when we had a friend and writer, Kathy Rensenbrink, on this podcast. You know, she said as a teenager she was reading G.H. Lawrence, as I was, you know, being um, lured there uh, for fairly obvious reasons. And then yeah, she said, yeah. sort of putting it down and holding it up and kind of squinting it. it. Well, have they had it off or not? I can't yeah.
2: tell. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. It, there were always things that were un- used to be things that were unclear, didn't there? I don't suppose uh, things are unclear now at all, are they?
1: Well, there's that Victoria Wood joke I love about how you know the the olden days were better because there was no sex, and but it was just sort of three dots, and um, <laughs> but I grew up thinking that anything written in Braille must be pornographic. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST.
1: We'll be back to Ken soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen The Group by Mary McCarthy. Before there was Hannah Horvath... Before there was Carrie Bradshaw, we had Kay, Dottie, Mary, Libby, Lakey, Helena and Polly. Every time I pick this book up, I can't believe it's set 90 years ago. It's so fresh, funny and bitchy. It's about women who are starting their adult lives just as the Great Depression kicks in and men and marriage keep getting in the way. I've read and owned various editions of this book. The last but one was an old pan paperback I found in a hedge. So I'm thrilled that Virago have reissued a beautiful new anniversary edition. The group by Mary McCarthy is published by Virago and out now. Now, back to Ken. I think Elizabeth Jane Howard does that beautifully as well and because she's so sort of gorgeously readable and so immersive and... I think she's perhaps a much more sort of subtle writer than she gets given credit for in seeing she, that seeing that evolution. Let me
2: make sure I, I've got her right. Is that, is that the author of the Cazalet novel? Yes, yes, that's, that's her. Yeah, yes, I read all five of those actually, um, not fairly recently, you know, in the last five years, uh, and was very taken with them. But but I did notice that nobody, nobody in all five novels. Ever has good sex. They're all unhappy. Either either they're not having it, or they don't like their husband, or don't like their wife. It is a bit unrealistic. I mean, some people do, you know, really have a great time. (laughs) Talking about changing views, um, I remember I went to see, Barbara and I went to see um, the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It was revived in London a few years ago. But I remember seeing it going, I remember going to see the movie in the 60s, so I was a teenager, uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were in it, and my, me and my girlfriend in the 60s, we sort of liked it, but we were baffled by it, we said, well what's it about, you know, what does it really mean? And it seemed, although in a way fascinating, it seemed terribly odd and and difficult and <laughs> <laughs> when I went to see it recently, I thought there was nothing odd about that. It's perfectly <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> it just because we were talking about how our perception of stories changes mm. over time, and there was a story that I regarded as something of a huge intellectual challenge when I was a teenager. Uh, when I was in my 60s, I thought, well, that's, that's just a normal play. <laughs> I,
1: think so. I remember that feeling seeing that when I was a teenager and having very, you know, strong feelings about it, feelings that I didn't quite understand. Right. and just being so appalled and enthralled. And I'm worried that I'm about to get this wrong. Did Mike Nichols direct the film of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yes. produced. Dale is nodding. I don't know. There's a book I read last summer and I loved it so much, um, and it's sort of, I suppose, an oral history about Mike Nichols. And it's called Life Isn't Everything. <laughs> and it's something like A Thousand Glimpses from His Closest Friends. And I will never forget it. It just really, really captured something about, I suppose, humanity and creativity and anxiety and uh, the, the trauma that he lived with and that he carried with him and that he was... You know, this sort of this comic genius who was also able to sort of step outside himself and bring so many visions together. So have you read it before I start? No, no explaining it no, to you. No. I mean I love an oral history because they do really just yank you and drag you through them. Yeah, um, yeah. that definitely kind of deepened and broadened my sense of who's afraid of Virginia Wolf and the idea that sort of how interesting it is. And I think all the books I love do this where they show that humans are capable of such great tenderness and such great cruelty and that he was someone who saw that and could put mm. that on the same page and on the same stage.
2: Interesting, yes. Well, he, he, uh, who wrote uh, Virginia? Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Do you remember? Ooh, is it
1: Edward Albee who
2: wrote the That's play? Right. I, don't I think it was. I think it was, yes. He had the ability to do emotional dynamics. There are only four people in it, aren't there? Uh, which is great for a play, because you only have to pay four actors. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he was very good at doing the dynamic between them all. When nothing much really happens, for a couple of hours, you're really absorbed in what's going on between those people, even when sometimes you're not sure what is going on. That's a great talent. That's a great talent. I'd love to be able to write for the theatre, but I don't think I can. I suppose when I think about the theatre, um, I sometimes think I'd like to direct a Shakespeare play because I see a lot. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Shakespeare, and I I see uh, loads. You know, I've seen all the all the great plays. Hamlet, I must have seen forty or fifty times, and. The other, the great plays, the other great plays, I've seen them all half a dozen times, and we'll see them again. But I've seen good and bad productions, and for me, the key, what makes the difference between a good and bad production, it's not, it's not the setting. You know, if they want to set, you know, Macbeth as a mafia story, I really don't mind that. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that, and I don't care, you know, if in the play they're supposed to draw a sword and they pull out a gun instead that none of that matters to me but what does matter is that the the actors must understand the meaning of the words they're saying and sometimes lazy actors learn the lines and they know about the they know about the meter and they know uh you know where the emphasis is supposed to come in the line and so on uh, and they, they just recite the poetry uh, without thinking about what it means, and that 's when I really don 't enjoy Shakespeare play, when the actors are doing that. And I really like it when you know somebody like Mark Rylance speaks the lines rather slowly, and there are pauses. Mark, when, you know, when, when Mark Rylance is doing a speech, it 's never hurried. You know, he 's thinking about it and then saying what he thinks. And for me, that's essential with Shakespeare. And I, I have long time had a fantasy of getting a group of actors, and, and directing them in Hamlet with the emphasis totally on, the words and their meaning. Uh, th- this will never happen, by the way. You know, it's like <laughs> like a lot of our fantasies. If it ever came true, we'd probably be scared stiff. <laughs>
1: I did actually have a question for you about actors and I really, 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 really loved um, Alan Rickman's diaries and oh, I yeah. noticed that you pop up quite a bit uh, with Barbara. Did you read those when they were published? Uh, yes. Have you? And how, how did it feel to read that about someone
2: you knew? Well, you know, what I, what I realised was that the, the part of Alan's life that we belonged to was really quite a small part of his life. We met him through labour party politics when we met we would that's the kind of thing we would talk about um but he had this uh he had so many friends he had friends in the states that he wrote about in those diaries and um and all the all the great british actors of his generation they were all pals and uh so that was that and i guess that would happen with anybody that you know if you've read the diary of their life, then you'd realise that um, uh, they had a ho- they had whole areas of life that you don't know about. I must remember that as a writer, actually, because um, the characters exist as they exist in my story, but if they were real, there would be a lot else about them that had nothing to do with this story, and uh, I must remember that.
1: Have you done much kind of wandering about in the bowels of the internet? Because I, I bet your readers writing it, I bet that does exist as fan fiction somewhere.
2: What I use the internet for every day is, check, is fact checking. You know, um, and I used to, before the internet was invented, I used to look at the Encyclopaedia Britannica at least once a day. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was my most important reference book for many years. And then the internet came along, and even though Wikipedia is not as reliable as Britannica, it's just so easy to Google something. In the end, you, if you're not sure, you've got to check it anyway. But you get your answer in no time at all, and you can carry on writing. It's a, it's a huge boon. The bit I like best, of course, is, is Google Earth. Because when I was writing Never, which is my last book to be published, I couldn't travel for research because it was lockdown. And Never is set, a big part of Never is set in the Sahara Desert and uh, in a country called Chad. Uh, and I could, I've never visited Chad and I couldn't in lockdown. It's probably a good thing because it's a pretty dangerous place to visit anyway. I relied, I saw, you know, films made in Chad and photographs on, on the edge of the Sahara. But the great thing about Google Earth is that wherever my character, even if my characters were in the middle of the Sahara Desert, I could find a satellite picture of that exact location where they were. And so I could describe it. Uh, And that was such a boon. Google Earth is, for writers, Google Earth is the best invention since the fountain pen.
1: (laughs) It's astonishing, isn't it? And I often wonder about the books that I've read and loved that are about past times and past places. Something that's maybe written 50 years ago and it's set 100 years ago and where people were getting their information from. Gosh, I got something fairly obscure. I was reading about something in Slightly Fox, and I think it was sort of a perhaps forgotten spine novelist writing about things that happened 100 years ago. And the author of the article was sort of having, you know, read them as a young person, sort of swallowing them whole. So I thought... was all made up it was all guesswork (laughs) everything that I sort of (laughs) took to be true and I think we do get understandably and rightly anxious about the provenance of things and I'm with you on Wikipedia where it's sort of one of the most useful things in the world but also you want to check and double check but also this you know misremembering of sort of you know the the fictionalizing and editorializing of facts and having them being presented as facts you know that's not perhaps as new as we worry that it might be.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. There was, um, in the 19 there was a series of novels about um, German espionage in the UK. And, you know, the Daily Mail made a huge thing about this. There were a lot of German waiters, for some reason, in that period of British history. And um, they were according to the, the scary novels that were being written, in which they, all the German waiters were spies and, and so on. And they they were very sensational, a very, very successful novels, sold a lot of copies, sold a lot of newspapers. And then when war broke out, people believed this, when war broke out, um, people were asked to name people they thought were German spies. And something like Ten thousand names were sent in to the home office in 1914 of suspected spies, and um, they were all investigated, and something like uh, you know a thousand came under suspicion, a hundred of them were arrested. I think five were prosecuted and one was convicted. Really, the Germans did not have a spy network in this country. Wow. But it was but it was but it's it was a huge it was kind of a scary fantasy that everybody bought in those days. Uh yeah, it was completely untrue.
1: Amazing. <laughs> but that was the the power, the sort of that collective imaginative force. It's yeah, just extraordinary. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One of the good books is The Riddle of the Sands from that period, published in 1908, 1907 or 1908, Rhythm of Sands by Erskine Childers, which is really, it's the first modern thriller. Uh, and the Germans are the villains in that, actually. It's a type of thriller that has been imitated hundreds of times since, including by me. <laughs> um, two young men on a boating holiday in the Frisian Islands, and they come across an armada, a German armada, getting ready to invade England, and they have to get home with the information, but they're discovered and they're chased, and that's that's the kind of thriller. It's an outdoor adventure. John Buchan, you know, Childers never wrote another book, but John Buchan picked up the baton and wrote five, I think, novels of exactly that type, starring a hero called Richard Hannay. And uh, it's a, you know... As Thrid- Riddle of the Sands is the, is the godfather of, of hundreds of novels of this type. I mean, talk about seminal, you know, uh, it's a book with um, hundreds of grandchildren.
1: <laughs> that reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you. I was lucky enough to see you speak at the Queen's Reading Room Festival last month. And you're part of a fascinating panel about spies and espionage and why that? Holds such sort of appeal and fascination for millions of us. I was wondering whether there is anything intrinsically British about the spy novel and the reader of the spy novel. If it's something that sort of culturally we have a very special place for, or if you do think it's that's not true and it's more universal than that.
2: Well, I think the appeal is universal, but there might be a reason why the British tend to write them, and it's because. It's not that long ago that we were the most powerful country in the world, as well as the richest. And we're all very conscious that those days are over. And we're now a relative. We have a small, not particularly rich country. And militarily, we're very weak without our allies. Uh, And so we have a sense that we've lost power. But you can have a fantasy in which there's a British spy... And he saves the world just because he's so smart and tough. He discovers the secrets, he, he, he uh, finds the assassin. So in a way, we have, the British have a kind of undercover power that nobody knows about. It's a fantasy of course, but it's a good one. And it's a good one for a former empire. Uh, and uh, that might be why we've produced so many successful spy story writers. Uh, that you know we were doing it even before Ian Fleming started to write James Bond, the fantasy of a of a once powerful country.
1: Mm. <laughs> I'd not ever thought about it in those terms before, but that's fascinating. I think that absolutely fits that sort of, I suppose that kind of that cultural insecurity and. Yeah. I mean, I guess when I think of, you know, James Bond in particular, obviously, you know, far from being the first, but being the sort of, you know, the iconic one and the emblematic one about his his cool under pressure. And that sort of is a characteristic. And if you love Bond and if you love espionage, is it the, you know, the how and the craft being, you know, what holds your attention rather than the why?
2: Yes. I don't think Fleming paid very much attention to Bond's motivation, you know. He's, he's just there, he's a tough guy and he does his job. Or indeed thinking about characters in Bond. I don't think anybody's motivation is that central to the story. So I think you're right, that's not what it's about. It's not about people's interiors, it's all, it's all exterior. Fleming was a very skillful writer. He really invented a prose style that perfectly matched his character. He uses some of the language of advertising and journalism, um, which, if you think about novels before the 50s, they were generally written in a sort of, in a rather professorial style almost. And Fleming wrote in a very collo- colloquial... is not the, quite the right word, but it's not formal prose, it's informal prose and uh, using a lot of brand names. I mean, he realized, of course, that brand names carry a lot of weight. You know, they're very suggestive. And that's because advertising people have been paid millions of dollars to give them that suggestivity. You know, they spent so much money trying to convince you that, that Heinz means, you know, really great preserved foods and that Fleming just took that and wrote on it and used it, which is what it, good writers you know, it do. it goes
1: all the way, I was thinking, to American Psycho and beyond, that it's become a kind of, you know, contemporary poetry. And I think people probably be sort of chilled by that. But that shorthand of having a word and knowing it's so evocative for millions of people and it's really, you know, it's really, really... Economical, I think in different ways, like Irvin Welsh does that um, a bit. Yeah. Um, and that sort of fabulous numbness, I think that's part of the Bond fantasy. Obviously not smooth, no complication, because the complications are absolutely the point, but that you can hit those beats and that, that amazing interweaving of the brands with Bond, you know, what kind of, maybe you could argue, became one of the most sort of memorable... 20th century brands oh absolutely um, the character
2: Uh, is a brand james bond is easily the most well known fictional character of the 20th century easily i mean far ahead of of who else would you think of poirot for example um you would think of bond is known everywhere and that's such a that's a tremendous achievement for an author i think you're right he's a brand you know because if a okay here's a movie about spies and and there's a lot there are a lot of stunts and there are a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of fighting and great car chases and beautiful women uh and it's worth twice as much if it has the words of james bond on it
1: ken i would love to talk to you for hours and hours but i know you're very busy and you've got lots to do and It's such a wonderful time, and I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I would love to finish by asking you about what you're reading at the moment, or what's next on your pile. I'm looking at the desk behind you, and I can see some books there.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Actually, that's um, I've never read Lisa Jewell before, and I'm halfway through this one, The Night She Disappeared. I'm really enjoying it. It's a really good mystery. Very. I'm totally intrigued. I have no idea. It's about people disappearing, and more than halfway through, and she still got me baffled but totally intrigued. Um, what I love
1: about that is we are about to interview Lisa Jewell for this okay. podcast on Friday, so there's oh, a lovely bit of um, oh yeah, linking
2: there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, by which time I will have finished her book. So now you know the phrase: "Now for something are completely different." <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> They found some manuscripts of Prousts that have got, been missing for, for decades. And they're called the 75 Folios. I've got it in English and French, Les 60 Foyer. And uh, what it consists of is a lot of sort of first drafts of scenes in, the Prousts, in Proust's recherche. And uh, I'm finding that fascinating because by now I know the recherche quite well. To read these things, oh, I know where that comes from, but it's not the same. And um, you don't think of Proust as a rewriter, because reading him, it seems as if all this stuff just poured out. But it didn't. You know, he wrote it again and again and again. And so it's quite fascinating to read these these early drafts of things that became, you know, probably probably the most famous literary novel of the 20th century.
1: I mean that is a truly eclectic selection. It is
2: a bit, isn't it? Yeah. And it
1: really <laughs> makes me want to run away. And um, I think I'm going to uh, get on with Trollope and also read some Proust because I'm, you know, ashamed and embarrassed to tell you this, but I never really have. I've never really got beyond the Madelins. They say, don't they, that everyone um, everyone talks about the Madelins and remembers the Madelins because they're on page three or something.
2: I tell you what. Let, let me make let me make a couple of recommendations. I. Oh, please do. The, the best trod novel for me is Orley Farm. And uh, after I read it the second time, I made a chart of the groups of characters to show how it's, a, it's about a legal case. And whenever there's a development in this legal case, he shows you how it affects each of those groups of characters in quite a systematic way. And it's a, it's a very well designed, very well planned novel. And the best way, I think, the least difficult part of Proust is a section called Swan in Love, An Amour de Swan. And you can actually, you can normally get it on its own in a paperback. And it's a good introduction because it's it's like the rest of the Recherche, but there's just a tiny little bit of a story in there, as well as all the reflections and and musings. So if I were you, if I was starting again, I would begin with Swan in Love. There you are.
1: (laughs) Swan in Love, Newly Farm. Wonderful. Ken, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't thank you enough.
2: You're most welcome. I've enjoyed it very much.
1: Huge thanks to Ken. I'm definitely going to be checking out his BBC Meister, course. The Armour of Light is published by Macmillan and out now. You can find all the books Ken mentioned at acast.com slash booked and see a selection of his reading list on our page at bookshop.org. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska. It was created by Dale Shaw and me, Daisy Buchanan. You can find and follow us at Why on social media. We would love it so much if you could share the podcast with your bookish friends. And if you have time, nothing would make our hearts happier than a five-star review. Does help other people to find us. Your review could help a new listener meet the book that changes their life. Imagine that. For now, I leave you with this from EM Deatherfield's Provincial Lady. Should prefer to be the kind of person who is inseparable from Volume of Keats or even Jane Austen, but cannot compass this. See you next time.